Hello and welcome to Not Safe for Publication, a podcast about the lighter side of humanities research. I'm Anna. I'm Georgia and with us today is Caroline. Caroline, welcome to the show. Hi, thank you for having me. Caroline is someone who has recently completed her PhD and so we're very excited to hear from that kind of perspective from someone who's been through the whole process now. Could you tell us a little bit about yourself and about your PhD? Yeah, I've just finished my PhD. I submitted it early at the beginning of this year and then had a long six-month wait until my visa because of COVID, which I did via Zoom, which was all very strange. I actually did my PhD at Durham University in the departments of archaeology and history. I researched bishops' houses through the Reformation, Civil War and Commonwealth period in the UK. Yeah, which was all kinds of strange and a really interesting topic. So, yeah, what's special about Bishop's Houses? So it's all a bit of a kind of funny story how I got into it because I'd never heard of them before. I did my undergraduate degree in archaeology and I knew I really liked medieval archaeology, medieval buildings, landscapes, and sort of how people's identity can impact the places they live and experience. And as it kind of came to the end of my undergraduate degree, there was no real job that I wanted to move on to. And it was my supervisor who actually said, why don't you stay and do a master's bio research on Bishop's Houses? And my reaction was, why would I want to do that? I've never even heard of them. I don't even know where they are. And then the more research I did into them, I realised that there are just a huge amount of these buildings all across the UK. So they're places where medieval bishops lived. But there's about around 200 of them. And so they're incredibly spread out. Basically, everybody lives near one, but nobody really knows anything about them, which is great. There was a huge amount of research to be done, and it felt very like entering a frontier of historic building. And so my PhD built on that, because my MA was looking at houses belonging to one diocese. That's Durham, the place I was in. And it became really apparent to me that all of the literature that existed appeared to end at the end of the medieval period, at the Reformation. But the most interesting bits... I thought kind of happened after that. And so I really wanted to do a piece of research which looked into that, which is what I did my PhD on, which was to look at what happens when religion changes in the UK, when these houses, the purpose of them changes, and there's loads of other things that go with them. Bishops begin marrying. Uh, They go from being only male environments to kind of family houses. And then through the Civil War and Commonwealth and what happens after bishops are no longer living them, which turned out to be a surprisingly interesting thing, but really, really difficult. And uh, it was actually in my viva where my examiner said, you know, why did you choose to do this? I said, oh, there's a huge gap in the research, you know, as you all do, which I think I'd written at the beginning of my thesis. I would say, nobody ever does this. It's a huge area to look into, and I'm going to be the one to do it. And he sort of says, wow, there's a reason no one does this. It looks at this period with this other building and it's because it's just really hard, which was nice. Which is kind of validation that the struggles that I'd had going through it was something somebody else kind of was aware of and it wasn't just me. So yeah, I hope that kind of answered it. Yeah, it absolutely does. So how long into the sort of, I don't want to say afterlife of these buildings, if they still exist, but does your research stay with them up until so i researched them between 1450 um so before the reformation and then up to 1660 so the restoration and so within that you get 
obviously the Reformation happens, they're lived in by Tudor bishops, and then a little bit later on Stuarts, and then you end up getting the civil war happen in the Commonwealth, and they're taken over by different people, which is something I'm now looking at building into um, a postdoc. Yeah, up to the Restoration. So that's when I look at them, uh, or have done. But it's a wild thing because, and I guess it's the same with everyone's research, is you assume everything's already been done and that everyone knows everything there is to know about these things which are everywhere you go in every city, more or less, as a bishop's house. But actually, when you look into it, there's a huge amount of research left to be done. And so that was a really validating experience. And did you expand the geographical area for your PhD? Did you sort of work on bishops' houses across the UK or did you stay in Durham? Yeah, no, sure. So I, for my MA, I looked at just Durham. And then for my PhD, I looked at four uh, dioceses that bordered each other. And so that was Durham, Carlisle, and then Glasgow and St Andrews. So I also brought in the Scottish element, which I think turned out to be a sort of unnecessary and unneeded complication. I felt like I was maybe a bit too ambitious when I came up with my PhD idea. And so that was definitely the hardest challenge I found. You're looking at four different places or four different dioceses across two countries. So there's really, really different data sets available to you and the buildings preserve in all kinds of different ways. So some of them are still standing that you can go to and experience today as, as like regular historic buildings. Some of them are just ruined and lots of them are completely subterranean archaeology. So you, you can't see them very easily as earthworks. So that just sort of added to the complication of it. But it was definitely fun because of that. You had to treat every site very differently and it really affected, you know, what you could say, but also the research questions you could ask about them. It was difficult, particularly the Scottish element, but it was a good, it was a bit difficult, I think. I think I'm probably going to show a little bit of ignorance now, but would each diocese only have one bishop's house? I do know a diocese would only have one bishop. I am not that ignorant, but would a bishop only have one house or were you dealing with multiple sites within one diocese? No, they have multiple houses. It varies how many they have. So the bishops of Winchester, for example, have about 70 houses. And they're not all within the geographical diocese. They can be really spread out and they can be beyond the diocese. So all bishops, or or basically all bishops, have a house in London during the later medieval period. They normally have one which is called their sea palace, which means that it's their house that's next to their cathedral normally. So kind of the main iconic house and Durham it would be Durham Cathedral and then they have other ones which are normally spread throughout the diocese within the manors so the manors the territories of land that the bishops own and they kind of gain money and resources through them and taxes and and that kind of thing and in many of those they'll also have residences so when we look at the, the kind of the earlier later medieval period the bishops will normally travel between those houses pretty constantly sort of every four days or something, they're moving between them and we have registers which really show that nicely. But by the time you get to the period I was looking at for my PhD, so about 1450, they're using fewer of their houses, they'll still own them, but they've concentrated their resources and wealth in certain places. And those are normally quite built up by that point into quite lavish and expensive and exciting palaces and castles. So it's actually, there's a lot of variation which makes comparing between these buildings quite difficult but also means that you can see an incredible level of organisation, both resource organisation and also organisation of people that's kind of manifested through all these different buildings that are all spread within different kinds of landscapes. So many of them will be attached to parks, which often they draw different resources from. So for 
bishops of Durham, for example, they have multiple different parks, but some of the parks appear to be used primarily for swans because the landscape allows them to be. And some of them appear to be used mostly for deer and they've got complicated process of moving those between their houses depending on where they are. It's a lot more complicated when you begin looking into it and it's um, more interesting because of that because then you suddenly realise that the ways that they understood the landscape that we live in today was entirely different, far more related to the natural geography and topography of the region. So yeah, I think doing the thesis has really forced me to interact with place I live which is Durham but other landscapes as well in a completely new and different way which has been incredibly rewarding and do you have a favorite bishop's house oh that's a good question I have a couple which I really like I'm gonna have to say the one I've worked most on probably which is Auckland Castle in Bishop Auckland I've worked in excavations there for the last couple of years and we found some really amazing things but also there's another site which I always thought it was really interesting. It's in a very interesting landscape, and it's the one I just mentioned with swans, which is Bishop Middleham. And that was, rather excitingly, that was excavated last year, meant to be excavated this year as well, which I was really, really excited for because I thought it has great potential. So there's no standing buildings there anymore. There's just lots of earthworks, and it's on this amazing rocky outcrop into this kind of... And it's now like a wetland reserve. So you can imagine exactly where the buildings have been placed and what they were looking over and we also have some great resources or great sources which tell us that the bishops were keeping swans there and they had these fish ponds and so we kind of got this watery landscape with these amazing buildings sat on top of it um, which don't exist anymore so that's a really exciting archaeological project where it's really possible through the archaeology to reconstruct something which we know incredibly little about which i think would have a really great visual impact and a really interesting story to tell um, to people living in the region today and in terms of just understanding bishops houses more generally in your time period presumably there were lots of individuals who held the the role of bishop uh, in each of these particular dioceses sure how possible is it to detect through your methods the sort of individual relationship that these men presumably had with their houses and I suppose with houses that they must have inherited from predecessors. So it's quite possible to identify that mostly by looking at account records where they survive. They tend to be the best way of identifying who's making what changes and when, particularly large scale changes. Although you know where historic documentation doesn't exist obviously it's harder and so you end up with this sort of mixed puzzle-like picture where you know that some people did some things but you know other building changes must have happened but you don't know who they're by and so there's a, a bit of a kind of untangling of that using kind of stylistic methods by looking at at the kind of what the building changes what they look like whether they look like other things from that time period and whether they look like other things that were built by those people because by the time they become bishops they've normally worked in many different posts often they're bishops elsewhere or other ecclesiastical positions and so normally when you have a big I call them builder bishops there are certain bishops you like to build a lot they it's normally not the first time they've done it so you can begin to work out trends that are associated with them in particular stylistic patterns and styles and mm. sometimes you can even work that down to where they've been traveling if you know enough about their life but bishops houses are crucially not owned by 
the individual bishops, they act as a steward or a caretaker to buildings that already exist. Mm. So that's one of the really interesting things about them is that they um, they very rarely demolish things, the bishops. They normally just add to things that people have previously done and buildings can end up quite complicated and rambling, which is interesting because by the time you get to the Civil War Commonwealth, suddenly it's the first time people are choosing to demolish large areas of buildings of bishops' houses, and it's interesting to see what they're choosing to demolish first. So there's sort of, within your research, there's a thread of almost personal taste to be picked up. I get the impression of a balancing act that bishops must have had to express between the things that they wanted to do with the buildings and the things that they felt they couldn't do, either because they were the caretaker of the building or because of its sort of age or significance. Yeah, exactly. That's exactly the point, is that you do gain a real sense of people's personal identity through it. And you, you I, well, sure, this is just a point I'm saying because I've spent so long researching it. And I'm sure this isn't interesting to anyone else. But you do end up sort of picking up individual traits and characteristics and feeling a bit like you know some of the people you're studying through what they're choosing to do. And so people that build, or bishops that have built, incredibly large, flashy additions, you, you do sort of really get a sense of, what they're trying to say to the world through what they're doing and so a lot of my research has focused on on looking actually at things like views out of windows onto what they're looking onto and the, the kinds of spaces that they're choosing to put into the buildings by the time you get to to the 15th 16th century because most of these houses are pretty established by then they've been around for hundreds of years they're well used people know what they're like so if you're choosing to add to buildings like that you're really choosing to make a big statement to the world. And so that's the really interesting thing is, is what are these statements they're trying to make? And so a lot of it's really through trying to unpick what the buildings look like today, often because it's most of the time, in many cases, after the restoration, you get a huge amount of building change that's made to them in the 17th, 18th and 19th centuries. So it's trying to unpick all of that to get back to what these sites would have looked like. And so it's a real mixture of history and archaeology and looking at historic images as well. So it's really fun. We're talking about a real mixture of sources because you've got archaeological evidence, you've got historic documents, you've got visual sources. How did you find balancing using such a variety of sources? Good question. It was tricky at times. I was kind of trained as an archaeologist. My undergraduate degree is in archaeology, but my PhD was split between archaeology and history. So I was really lucky to have supervisors which work on all those data sets. I'm a really big believer that with archaeology and history, we're both looking at the past. And while the disciplines are different, I really like straddling the border between the two data sets and using different approaches from both to try and see what you can gain. I think that it's sitting on the edge of, of any discipline is where you push the boundaries the most. And so I was really thrilled to work both history and archaeology and to use such a range of data sets to tell the best story I could. As I said, I'm working with a whole range of different types of buildings. It's a huge range of different sources available for each individual one. That to not make use of everything available to me would really be doing a disservice to lots of these sites. And uh, in any case, I think I'm sure you guys find as well that when you want to tell a narrative and you want a story to be told and you're aware that there's things you can say it's just so interesting to delve into every source available and to try and gain all the knowledge you can and so I wasn't really going to be limited by just one type of data set or two. 
you know, a few types of data set. And it was great because I got to learn how to do paleography, which was something I'd never been taught before. And I, it was fun to be able to go and excavate a site and apply that straight back to a document I'd read, which had described somebody using a, a room that doesn't exist anymore. So it was actually, that was probably the most rewarding aspect of the work I've done and also the most useful to be trained in this, the widest range of skills that I could be. You mentioned during your introduction that you have now, after a bit of a delay, had your viva and finished your PhD completely. And obviously this has sort of been quite a challenging and weird year Yeah. in which to do that. So I was sort of wondering... How's it been to graduate out into 2020? <laughs> really anticlimactic. <laughs> People said it to me beforehand, which was when you hand in your thesis, you know, it feels really anticlimactic because, you know, you're just handing in a really big essay and you expect it to be a bigger thing. And that's completely what it was like. I hand in, I went away on fieldwork straight away. And then I had a job lined up to begin, which was going to be a year long from about a month or two after I submitted my thesis. So I was really looking forward to having those kind of couple of months of um of kind of calm and rest before I went to do this and obviously it didn't quite work out like that so I worked for three months doing that job which is meant to be a year which I was very um happy to do but as I said my viva took about six months so it's all been really dragged out but it's also been really great in so many ways because it's given me a time to decompress and relax and I'm now coming back to writing and doing more research and kind of bring coming up with ideas for the future and I feel in a much better space to do it in than I think I would have been had this year gone as I'd planned and now I also found that my viva was a really great experience I came out of it going yeah I really like my topic I'm really good at this this is great which I'm very happy for so it definitely gave me the right motivation to to move forward and do more work Um, so I'm back doing research now which I'm really happy about and yeah I think this year has been strange and it hasn't been as I imagined, but it has worked out really well, ultimately. Well, it's really nice to hear a 2020 success story. And I think it's a great way to look at things, to think about the ways in which things went better than you expected instead of just the ways in which it was uh, disappointing. I think that's probably the most healthy way to approach it. I think you said you're sort of eyeing up maybe a postdoc. That's exciting stuff. Do you think you'll stay in Durham? I'm not sure. It's difficult. I'd be quite pleased to leave. So that came out something wrong. <laughs> you did all three of your degrees at the same university. Is that right? I did. Yeah. So I did the same. And I think if I do a postdoc, I'll go somewhere else. Yeah, I did really enjoy Durham and I really like it. And I'm, I'm sure you feel the same way. But it would be nice to try somewhere different. I was lucky enough to go on a, a sort of helping with a lecture tour trip and a bit of a research trip last year to America and went to some universities there. And, and it was just really interesting to see what it's like in other places. So I'm definitely thinking more globally this time about applying to as many different places as I can and just trying something a bit new. But it is difficult because my research has, until this time, been really centred in the northeast of England and in in the UK uh, more generally. So trying to come up with a topic that would take me further afield but still play to my strengths and what I know is the challenge. But it's a good challenge. It's interesting. But definitely, I feel like moving forward past 2020 and 21, I want something a bit different and a bit of a change. We ask all of our guests to tell us a funny or light-hearted anecdote or something they came across in their research life that 
cheered them up and that would cheer up our listeners. Do you have anything like that? Yeah, there's quite a few things which I found in my readings about different kind of characters who lived in my houses, which were quite nice stories, which cheered me up and that I've used as much as possible. For example, I found out that my bishops, my bishops, the bishops that I studied uh, kept pet monkeys, which rather gruesomely they used to fight with. Wait, the monkeys would fight each other or the monkeys would fight the bishops? The monkeys would fight each other. They would release the two monkeys. Okay. It's rather gruesome, actually. They would release the monkeys and there was a big one and a little one. And they would give one of them nuts that they would put in their mouth and the other one would basically try and fight the nuts off. And this was apparently, like, the best entertainment that a bishop could have. And people wrote about it endlessly, about coming to visit this bishop and loving seeing the monkeys. And I was lucky enough to be involved in a TV show that happened at an excavation at one of the sites I worked on last year. Got called in beforehand to kind of advise on things they could film. And I was obviously really excited and took as many things as I could. And things like a stack of books and pictures. And, you know, these are things, these are some really interesting stories said about the monkeys thinking that this was going to be the thing that people would love and it's really fascinating and so they came to do the filming of the excavation and it was all great and everyone was like Caroline we'd really like to film you and I'm like of course it's my big moment to talk about monkeys and then as it turned out they wanted to film me down a latrine yeah and it was nothing about monkeys it was just about excavation and archaeology and and that kind of thing and so I'm kind of standing there and I'm like waist deep in this medieval latrine kind of saying oh how interesting we found this piece of pottery thinking that it was going to be about the monkeys I thought it was going to be glamorous Thought it was going to be glamorous. I also had, um, we'd also found some amazing finds. We found like a gold ring and we found some really interesting pieces of tableware and glass and this lovely ivory knife and some really glitzy, glamorous kind of archaeology circles. The really exciting, juicy stuff. But no, no, none of that, which was a shame. And But I'd like to say it's the first time that this has happened. But another one of my sites I went to go see was incredibly strange it was a bishop's house and most of the building had been destroyed but one of the towers had been retained and used for different things since the demolition of the rest of the house and so i went to go check it out and and sometimes it's possible to contact the people who live there first to find out you know if it's okay to go and sometimes it just isn't possible to get that kind of information so you doorstep people and you kind of knock on their door and explain what you're doing and so i imagined it was going to be like that So I rolled up and it turned out that the whole site was being used as a kind of modern ecological commune. It was really interesting. They had kind of polytunnels through all this ruined building and they were growing things. The tower was being used as an ice store and it was interesting. And there was one bit of the site I really wanted to look at that I'd read about. I thought it was going to be really interesting for an argument I was forming. And so I go over to it and they were using it as a composting toilet. So I never got to do any of the archaeology on it, which to this day is is strange and slightly irritating and a weird one to have to write and explain in your Bible. It was all very peculiar. I would have loved to talk about that tower, but unfortunately it was full of hippie poop. Exactly. (laughs) It was strange. So I guess that really shows the kind of great range of diversity of these buildings and their use today. Yeah, and that ongoing sort of afterlife, after afterlife. Yeah, exactly. Along those lines, that's taken me to some really obscure and strange places, to car parks, you know, where you can't really see anything, to the top of hills and to weird bits of woodland where you're kind of walking along going, I'm sure I'm not meant to be here. So yeah, it's quite a journey, but those were definitely my two funniest moments, I think, that happened to me. But there's plenty of strange stories about about bishops and, and 
I'm working on an article at the moment about bishops dying and what happens to them after death and what they're choosing to leave to their loved ones and the archaeology associated with bishops and, and death and the amount of people who die of really obscure things. It's really peculiar. There's one bishop who has a post-mortem and they accidentally leave in the knife and then somebody else comes to, I think, kind of sew up the body and they, they end up stabbing themselves and getting gangrene and dying. And it's stuff like that. It, that's not a very funny story. That's quite a sad story. It's, I'd say, darkly humorous. <laughs> yeah, I think the more research you do and the more you get into it, the stranger it seems and that people really aren't that different today than they were in the past, I think would be the take-home message from all of that. I think if there's one thing I've learned from this whole podcast, it's if you're going to ask someone who's done or is doing a PhD for a funny story, the person to ask is an archaeologist. Every single time we've had an archaeologist on, they have had some objectively good material. Oh, really? Like what? Oh, we've just had lots of good fieldwork stories. We had a guest who did fieldwork in Iraq. Uh, who had some good stories about that. Um, and then another one from someone who was yeah, doing fieldwork in Greece, getting around in rural Greece, and just sort of being a stranger in a strange place, <laughs> and turning up and being like, can I dig a hole, please? I have, not related to my PhD research, but other fieldwork I've done abroad, I mean, you, you can't help but have strange situations. I did six weeks in Ukraine as an undergrad, and that was mad there were just the wildest things it was really strange but unfortunately my PhD was mostly in the UK so you limit out a pool of funny stories there yeah I mean most of my funny funny things come down to things that people in the past have done that I've uncovered I think that's probably it Mm. but I have had some really lovely discovery moments which at least for archaeologists are kind of that's what it's all about I assume exactly that is what it's all about I was working on an excavation where we uncovered a big chapel, which was great, a really massive, super massive chapel, which I knew existed from documents, lots of people did. And I had an idea of where it would be. And we began digging, and it was a big excavation, and it didn't look like we were going to hit it. And I'm sitting there going, oh no, this isn't good. You know, we should, we should get it here. And then we did, and we did find it, and that was an amazing discovery. And we found out how it was destroyed as well, and we found, which, which turns out to have been destroyed during the commonwealth by this super puritan parliamentarian who just exploded it using gunpowder which was written about but we found this amazing fantastic big piece of building stone which had been cracked right through the middle in a way that could only have been done using explosives and we found some amazing little artifacts as well that tell say so much about life during the occupation of the site which we didn't know before or i didn't know before which has all been completely fascinating and discovered one of the only discoveries of whale baleen in the UK, archaeological discoveries of it, uh, which doesn't normally survive because it's collagen. So those discoveries have been, I think, probably my, my favourite things. But funny stories, it's harder, it's much harder. It's mostly just me and Latrine's deep, deep pits of misery. <laughs> <laughs> well, you managed to make them funny. Caroline, thank you so much for joining us today. It has been a real pleasure to hear about your research and it's also just been really enjoyable to talk to someone who is sort of post-PhD and seems to be doing well and still loves research and still happy. 
fog just going to pieces. Uh, no, not at all. Not at all. It's lovely to be on this and to meet you guys. So thank you so much. Thank you for inviting me. Anna, thank you for hosting. Thank you very much, Georgia. And as always, to our listeners, don't tell your supervisor what you heard here today. What happens on the podcast stays on the podcast. Not Safe for Publication is a podcast by and for the research students of the Faculty of Humanities at the University of Manchester. If you want to get in touch with us, you can reach us on Twitter at NSFP Podcast, or you can email us at nsfppodcast at gmail.com. Our intro and outro music is Hat the Jazz by Twin Musicom.